1: I want to uh, begin by thanking Brother Tom for subbing for me last week. One of the exercises that I went through when I was a a tadpole of an engineer is our, our boss wanted every one of us to learn how to make oral presentations. And they put us through a class to do that. And then the final exercise was you prepare your presentation and present it, and then you give it to someone else, and they see how well they can present it, so you swap in that way. Well, I gave my presentation to Brother Tom last week, and he did a lot better job with it than I could do, so uh, I'm grateful for what he brings to the table as far as teaching is concerned, and that ability he has to pick up somebody else's thoughts and And put them in his own words and do such a great job. Today we're going to talk about Jesus Christ as we have continued to do in the book of Colossians. And this is the seventh in the series of lessons. And we're going to talk about him as the source of wisdom and him as being the fullness of God. And I'd like to begin by getting my clicker first. And I'd like to, for us to look just momentarily at where we've been thus far. And this is mainly looking back at Colossians 1. We're going to focus on chapter 2 today. But Paul begins chapter 1 and he makes, he gives a commendation of the people there. Uh, and I think he probably is doing that because a little bit later on he's going to uh, lay a warning on them and perhaps a little bit of chastisement. And so a good way to approach someone that you're going to talk to and kind of stern is first of all, commend them, which is what he did. And then he offered thanks for them in his prayer for their faith, their love, and their hope, and for their strong faith and the fact that they were growing and producing fruit. And then he launches into a discussion of the supremacy of Christ. And then he talks to them about how they have been spiritually cleansed. They have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into God's kingdom. And he encourages them by mentioning two things that that have been done on their behalf. First of all, he mentions all of the work, the hard work that he put into preaching and teaching the gospel and things that were done on behalf of the church there. And then he talks about all of the wisdom and the knowledge and the complete understanding that they can have by being in Christ. And I think Paul is using all of these, and and he'll continue on in chapter 2, as a way of addressing the false teaching that's going on there uh, in the church at Colossae. He commends them first, and then he starts to warn them. He encourages them by talking to them about the supreme and superior and all-surpassing sufficiency of the nature of Jesus Christ. And he talks to them uh, about uh, Jesus, uh, and he's going to continue to that as they uh, talk about him as a source of wisdom. And and he concludes this early part of the discussion by offering encouragement again. Again, he goes positive with them. He's begun now, and we'll see as we get into chapter 2, to uh, issue some warnings to them. But one of the things that I really appreciated about what Tom did last week, he gave a great illustration about the silo. I'd used a different illustration, and he talked about Christ as a silo storehouse of all our treasures. If you look in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, in verse 2 it talks about the riches uh, in Christ, and in chapter 3 it says those are a storehouse, and he He describes those in these terms. He says all of those treasures are in him. They are hidden. That is, they are stored up. And there are no other. He has all treasures. There are none other. He has all treasures. And this word riches and treasures that he uses are kind of interesting. He uses two different words. First, the idea of riches conveys the idea of abundance of wealth. And the idea of treasure is exactly what's conveyed by a silo. All of these treasures in Christ are stored up for us. And he uses the present tense. They are now stored up for us. Uh, So it is, I think, a really rich picture of how he describes Christ and all of the knowledge and the wisdom that we benefit from by the fact that He is who He is and He is has our treasures, our spiritual treasures stored up <clears throat> by Him for us. Then He starts in verse 4 and verse 5 to issue His first warning to them. And we'll see some more of these warnings just in a little bit down in ver- as we begin in verse 8. And He begins by saying in verse 4, Now this I say, and he's referring back to what he had just said, I think, in uh, verses 1 through 3 about Christ being the source of knowledge. So Christ is a source of knowledge, but don't you be persuaded by phony knowledge, phony knowledge made up of these persuasive words uh, that he talks about. These are words that were meant to deceive them, to trick them into thinking... <clears throat> That the nature of Christ was something different. The knowledge that they had from Christ was something other than what they understood it to be. They persuaded it to be something special, something that only a few people could understand. But Paul makes the point that your knowledge that you have, he uses words that imply or suggest completeness. You have complete knowledge you have complete certainty and understanding about where you stand. Uh, you don't need to be deceived by these phony words, these phony teachers. He goes on to say, for though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit. I think he's just wanting to assure, provide further assurance to them that he is indeed thinking about them and he's given a lot of thought to what he has to say and these warnings that he's giving to them. Then he goes on and says that he rejoiced in the good discipline and the steadfastness of their faith. He's rejoicing in the fact, again, complimenting them, commending them for the fact that they have this strong faith. Even though I'm not there with you, I want you to please be aware of these false teachers. Even though I'm not there with you, I am encouraged by you. I rejoice in the fact that you have the steadfastness, the firmness of the faith that uh, you have been demonstrating. Now, this made me pause and want to ask a question. Paul is talking about sources of misinformation, deception that is being used by these people. Do we today have sources of misinformation that people would try to mislead us and misdirect us as Christians. Can you think of some that might be even prevalent around us? I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to move closer. Yeah, that's, that's a very prevalent piece of misinformation, misrepresentation. That the only faith, only belief is all you have to do uh, in order to please God. Do you think of other things that people would use? What are some of the sources that, that we have around us all the time of misinformation? The internet, right, exactly. Yeah. And the media. Uh, there are all sorts of misrepresentations of Christianity, of people of faith, in the media. You think of other things. Yeah. Yes, Fred.
0: today is there's no such thing as absolute morals no such thing as objective truth and it sounds good on the surface because in following that ideology people that want other people to (coughs) follow it will wind up with a sense of they're not going to be on the short end of the stick for some reason the thing is how do you get from point A to point B without making moral judgments. And why would you make Stay out of trouble, avoid sin, avoid harming other people. You have to make value judgments to avoid trouble. Not only for others, but for yourself as well. So there is objective truth. There is absolute morality. And it's all
1: from God. Points point is made uh, with regard to relative truth. A lot of people advocate the fact that, you know, my truth is okay, I can do as I want. Your truth is okay, you do as you want. Uh, Fred makes the point that there is absolute truth, there, is absolute, there are absolute moral standards. How in the world are you going to make sound judgments about truth, about your own moral conduct? if you don't have these standards uh, to go by. They're not relative. They are absolute because they're from God. After these warnings, he goes on and he gives in verses 6 and 7 some really useful metaphors for us to think about. Uh, There are five of them there. And he uses the first the first metaphor that he uses is in the form of a command or something you must do. You must walk in Him. And notice that each one of these ends, or at least the first three or th- four of the five, end in the words "in Him." If you think about the many, many times that this expression is used in the Book of Colossians, I think it is another way of saying a shorthand way of saying that Jesus is all-sufficient. In Him is everything, all the wisdom, all the treasures, all the moral teachings, all the truth, everything that we need. Since you have that, what kind of conduct, what kind of life should you live? Well, you should walk in Him, in the all-sufficient nature, teaching of Jesus Christ. The next metaphor he uses the referring to a plant, being rooted in him, like a like a healthy plant. Then he talks about being built up in him. Again, the idea of a well-constructed building. And then he talks, he uses the word established in the faith. And that word includes the idea of proven beyond a doubt. You have Wisdom, you have understanding, you have knowledge, so that you can be with confidence beyond a doubt in the faith. And then he mentions or uses the term uh, as you've been taught uh, in verse 7. And uh, instruction, teaching, uh, he's talking there and what has happened, what has benefited them in the past. But in the previous terms, rooted, built up, established in the faith, he's using the present tense. He's saying these are things that you not only should have been doing, these are things you need to do now and to keep doing. This is your new walk in life. Uh, He urges them to continue all of these four things. Walk in him, be rooted in him, be a sturdy building in him, and be established having no doubt as to where you stand before the Lord. And I think just like the Colossians, we need to keep in mind in our modern world with all of this relativity around us that uh, we don't really need new teaching. What we need is to continue to hold to the things that we have been taught and be rooted in those, be built on those. Help the church to grow. As a result, and then in verse seven, he ends up by saying, "Abounding in it, abounding in your walk in these in these uh, ways of Jesus Christ, abounding it with thanksgiving." Again, he's using that in the continuing sense. You need to continue to be thankful. You need to continue to be a person. Uh, I think the fruit that follows from that is contentment. A person who is thankful is going to be content with their life. Thanksgiving is a stabilizing influence in her life. And he goes on and he talks further and he expands some on this idea. Really, what I'm doing here is looking back a little bit. Uh, I don't know how well that can be read from where you are, but he... He goes back and he reminds them why they should be thankful. The things that he's listed leading up to this, uh, beginning in verse 2, he he talks about them having been encouraged. uh, And he tells them they should be knit together uh, in love because they have been encouraged. And because you've received all of the understanding that you need, all the wisdom, all the things that you need to enjoy these treasures that are stored up in, in Jesus Christ. Then he gives them a warning uh, that we've talked about a little bit already, about decei- being deceived by uh, false teachers. And then he tells them that they, the nature of what they have been taught is certain and it's absolute. The terms, again, that he uses there carry the idea of certainty and being absolute truth. And then he points out again uh, that Jesus is the all-sufficient one, and therefore you should walk in him, you should be rooted in him, you should be like a firm building, you should be established in your faith, and you should be one who continues to abound in thanksgiving. And that word abounding there is kind of an kind of interesting word. It, it carries the idea of being abundantly abounding. In other words, super abounding. Abound in your thanksgiving. Be it very, very abundant in your thanksgiving. And I think that it's appropriate for us to pause and ask ourselves a question as a congregation of the Lord's people. Do we do I superabound in thanksgiving because of all of these blessings that he's outlining, because of all the teaching that we've been able to enjoy through the years that provides us a strong foundation for our faith. I know, and we hear it in the prayers expressed by the men leading our prayers, that there is thanksgiving for so many things about the nature of our church. And I think that's all very, very appropriate. It's it's, it's great, I think. Now, I'd like to highlight or focus a little bit on the next seven or eight verses, 8 through 15. And the theme there is the fullness of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> there, uh, the, the point is made about the uh, nature of Christ being the fullness of God. That is, he is fully God. He has all the aspects of divinity, of the divine. Uh, And then, in the very next verse, he begins again with warnings. He tells them, uses the word beware. In other words, look around you, see this false teaching that's being presented to you and be aware of it, and take action. Again, a command, an urging to them, something they should indeed must do. He says that their technique is to use philosophy and what he calls empty deceit. Remember, the, uh, the Grecians were very well known for their use of philosophy and how they used it uh, to, make, to convince people of their way of understanding and thinking. And he's saying, don't be caught up in these ideas of, uh, of philosophy that you're hearing around you. And, of course, we've mentioned just some, briefly some examples of those we, we experience in our, in our own lives of the philosophy of the world, if you will. He's uh, condemning in this... Uh, embedded in this is the use of fancy or flowery, flowery speech, uh, to in order to deceive people, to mislead people intellectual, intellectually. Some of the things that you hear, they sound very appealing. They sound really great, uh, until until they're not. And he calls these things empty. He says they have. They have no value, and he refers to these uh, four things—or three things rather—that these people, these false teachers, are using to deceive you. According to these things, first of all, he mentions their tradition that are taught by men, things that have been handed down uh, through the ages, through the years, Uh, and. Again, I think it may be useful to pause and ask ourselves the question, are there things that are traditions that may invade the church that uh, perhaps are not the best way to go or perhaps even lead people astray? Anyone think of any traditions maybe that have caused problems in the church in the past? Well, those of us who are a little bit older can remember various controversies, if you will, that have uh, been down through the years, uh, things that were really based upon tradition, like started out with one-cuppers and and uh, things of that sort. One of the things that, uh, that I, came to my mind in thinking about this was, uh, and, and it falls more in the category of uh, of this philosophy uh, something that some of you will probably remember that happened several years ago, something called the Boston Movement or the Discipling Movement uh, it was something that really sounded good because it talked about, well here are ways that the church can grow and reach out and uh, bring other people to Christ but there were some flaws in that uh, and and it led to Entire congregations being led away from the truth. Uh, and, and there's still some vestiges of that uh, around even today. The basic principles of the world. Uh, not quite sure exactly what that means. Uh, it may mean th- things that are just uh, unlearned, simple-minded, uh, misinformation, instead of, in contrast to what he's talked about, the riches, the treasures of wisdom that are in Christ. And again, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure that, that I could uh, think of too many examples, but one thing I thought of there is the idea that you hear often, actually, that surely God is not going to punish sinners surely he's not going to punish a person for just telling lies i mean we, in this country we don't even put people to death unless there's just really severe circumstances it's rare surely god a righteous god is not going to not going to behave in that way when it comes to the judgment then he concludes this description by saying that it's in yes sir That this idea of the basic principles of the world would be principles, teachings that the world would advocate, conduct that many people in the world exercise, but certainly we as Christians want to stay far away from it. And he concludes this by describing, kind of catching everything, and says anything that's not according to Christ, it's not according to his teachings, to his authority. Uh, anything that is according to his will, yes, I think I saw a hand back here.
2: Guess, um, that are built on culture and just the way that language is used. Um, and so just just the way that everyone tends to use language around us can, can change our conception of things so that it doesn't always align with what the world we should be. Like huh.
1: she, she points out the uh...
2: Like like even in everyday language, like our world right now I mean, I I recently this went back up to the Northeast and I was horrified by just no, I, I couldn't wait to get back. Just walking around towns like, you know, pronouns and this and that and, you're not being fair and it's like it, it's it's absolutely insanity. Yeah. like people have lost their way so much and it's all about like because they can't look to God for security if that makes, because they have no the faith they have no the security therefore they get into this narcissistic trip where they have to look to themselves it, it's just it's it's so even in the churches it's like the Lutheran church has mm-hmm. gone away I was raised Catholic so what you're saying for me, like, when you say the problems for churches, I could probably spend the rest of the time going on and on about it. Um, it. It's just so tragic that even so many people now who claim to be Christians, they're so far off base as to what that means. And, and just, sorry, she triggered me with with words. But, but even in our language, like, in the news, like, there's literally so much, how many times, how many times a day do we turn on the news and we hear... That Christians are the problem. I'm sorry. So, and that's those are the, these are ideologies of the world. Like we're not the problem; we're the solution.
1: Some great points there made about the uh, the effects of our culture around us, uh, and in a term I suspect all of us we've heard or have heard is the so-called woke agenda. This idea of you've got to use certain pronouns to describe people. Uh, you can only use certain language to refer to categories of people in fact there's a lot of as as we know a lot of dividing of people into group and you fit this pronoun, you fit this term, another group over here, another and if you say if you misuse one of those terms you are you're a bad person you're you're you christians you're using Things like you're talking about homosexuality and other things; those those are offensive. You shouldn't be talking that way. That's that again. Coming back to what Brother Glenn is saying, I think that is perhaps in this category of the basic principles of the world. They want us to behave in this way. So we have these warnings from Paul. And uh, I wanted to talk just a little bit further about that and remind us of some things that uh, uh, other places in Scripture where we've heard this warning about being spiritually deceived. This is a quote, of course, from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus himself said, Beware of false prophets. Again, Paul's dealing with false prophets here in Colossae, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Paul also used the similar kind of language in the book of 2 Corinthians, and he's warning about false apostles, men who claim to be apostles. They're deceitful workers. They transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an apostle or an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Or or I would suggest, really, they are changing themselves into ministers of misinformation. Then Paul also provided a warning to the young preacher, Timothy. And as I was thinking on this, uh, it's been my observation as an old person that There is a greater temptation perhaps among young preachers to want to listen to the culture around them. There is a temptation to listen to people even in the church and say, well, this is what I want you to speak about and preach about. Why aren't you talking about this particular issue? Paul warns Timothy in this way. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching, for well, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Oftentimes, uh, people want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear what the preacher has to say, what the elders have to say. They want to have their ears tickled, or to use the term, they have itching ears that's used in this passage. So we have not only the warnings regarding traditions, false teaching, philosophy, etc. from Paul in Colossae, but other places as well. So we need to take note. And he goes on in the next two or three verses and he gives them some reasons to not be deceived. Again, he uses the terminology in him. And I would remind us, or think in these terms, when he's saying in him, he's talking about everything that is captured in Jesus Christ. All of his teachings, all of his wisdom, all the understanding, all these treasures that he has stored up for us. Remember that in him, first thing he says is, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. He's talking about his nature, his divinity. He is divine. In him, in verse 10, we're made complete. Uh, that is, we're made mature. And that, again, is, an, is another interesting word. It, is, it has the same root as the word fullness. Uh, so he's talking about Jesus being completely God, being fully God, And I think he's suggesting perhaps to us that we need to be fully, we need to be complete, we need to be fully Christ in our own lives. That, of course, is is the goal uh, for us, that Christ had in mind for us. In him, in Christ again, the all-sufficient Christ is all authority. He has the power, He has the authority to do uh, everything that's been promised to you. Remember, these people are telling you you just have to have a certain kind of knowledge, a certain kind of understanding. But Jesus has all the authority to do exactly what He has said to you, exactly how you have been taught. Then He says in... uh, And the next thing that he refers to, uh, well, he uses the term in referring to Christ is he's the head of, uh, of all principality and power. He has all spiritual authority. He's the head, of course, over the church. But because he's fully God, he has all authority over all spiritual matters. And he ends with another, in him we have received, and I've put the word, citizenship there but it, he uses specifically it says in verse 11 in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands remember in Judaism you became a citizen of those people you became a Jew by the fact that you were physically circumcised here he's talking about the figurative circumcision of baptism a baptism or circumcision made, Without hands. So the Jews became citizens by circumcision, and so do we by spiritual circumcision. We become newborns, newborn believers uh, in Christ. He can a little bit further about this fullness of Christ and the authority. These are some things that he suggests in verse 11 through 13. That Christ in all of his authority can do. He can change you. He has the authority, the power, the ability. You were in the uncircumcision of your flesh in verse 13, but now you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You were in verse 13 dead in your trespasses, but now you've been forgiven of all those trespasses. You were dead. Spiritually, but now in verse thirteen, you are made alive together with him. Then, looking at this another way, uh, we can think of these uh, verses. I think in these terms, it talks about in uh, I believe it's verse twelve. The uh, through the faith in the working of God, and then he goes on to highlight in these again in these same verses what uh, Christ has done by the by, through our faith in the working of God. Christ has forgiven us. He's wiped out the uh, law of ordinances and he's disarmed principalities and power, and powers. What you see in this table is the demonstration of Jesus' power or authority. He has power over these three things. Uh, I'm not going to cover these particular scriptures. What this is is a highlighting of the passages of scripture that talk about how the law was taken out of the way. It's taken out of the way because... Uh, It was annulled. Uh, It was because it had weaknesses and it was unprofitable. Uh, It was uh, not faultless like the second covenant of Jesus Christ. And he highlights several reasons. And I, I listed all of those primarily to show us that indeed, Scripture makes absolutely clear that the old law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, they're gone. They've been annulled. Jesus said he was going to fulfill them, uh, and he did. The thing then to notice out of this: the three things. Jesus, we've been talking about him as the preeminent one, the superior, the supreme one. We see in this, in these few verses, that he describes the preeminence that Jesus has over sin. You've been forgiven over Moses' law and Judaism. That that handwriting of requirements is taken out of the way. It's removed. And he has authority over all principalities and powers, over all evil spiritual powers and authorities as well. So he is preeminent over sin, over the law of Moses. Any of these teachings that you've been hearing about that would suggest that the law of Moses can be brought back in, as some were teaching even in Paul's time. Not so. And he is, there are no secret powers, no sources of secret knowledge that you can turn to because Christ has the dominion over all of those. He's disarmed them. And that's... uh, Again, a metaphor that's kind of hidden in all of them, in, in that language. Uh, <clears throat> it suggests the idea of a triumphant military leader or a king who has disarmed, who has overwhelmed his opponents, his enemies, and now he brings them. And it was a tradition in those times for a king to lead his, the defeated enemy behind him in a triumphant uh, parade through the city before the people to show uh, what a great leader he is. And Jesus has indeed disarmed, uh, disabled, uh, removed the ability of all of these evil powers of the world that are all around us. Satan uses disguises of all kinds, as we mentioned briefly, to... uh, disguise the woke agenda, if you will, disguise the culture of the world so that it looks appealing, so that it would uh, deceive us. So he's warning them. He is teaching them the true nature of Jesus Christ. And I thought of three things that perhaps this lesson might remind us of. Uh, it does remind us in his warnings of the subtlety of false teaching. And we've given some examples of how the world would have us regard moral principles, moral truths, absolute truth. In this lesson also, he highlights over and over again with various illustrations, with various metaphors, that in him, and again I would suggest that that in him is just a way of saying the all sufficient Jesus Christ in him shorthand for all of that is all of the wisdom that we need to walk in him to be rooted to be grounded to be like a strong building all of that is in provided for us by Jesus and it's only the power what i call the preeminent power of Jesus Christ that we can enjoy the fullness not the fullness of God like Jesus Christ of course but we can enjoy fullness in the sense of being complete is the word he uses there or mature spiritually mature we can have complete this, the, this passage in various ways makes clear I think we can have complete certainty we can have complete understanding we can have complete confidence in this storehouse of treasures that's laid up for us because we have an all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-supreme, all-preeminent God that we worship, the Savior that we follow. Any final thoughts? We have, I think, just a few minutes before we need to complete conclude. Anyone have any thoughts? Well, perhaps I've put you all to sleep. I want to thank you for being here and for being a part of this class and for participation. And uh, I welcome your comments. Uh, Not that I'm looking for compliments uh, I would welcome any criticism or a better understanding of things uh, that I've tried to share with you. Let's, uh, let's bow together in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you, that you teach us and that you remind us of everything that we have in Christ. We have a, a wisdom and understanding that is unsurpassed we can have a confidence, a certainty in knowing and understanding and studying and being taught these truths. We're thankful for that confidence which you give us. And Father, we're thankful for a Savior that provides so much for us that we can walk in the proper way that you would have us to walk and like a healthy plant we can be rooted firmly in the earth and unmoved by the world. That we can be like a strong building, not buffeted and overwhelmed by the by the influence of the world, but withstanding and standing prepared for the time that you will bring us home with you. Father, thank you so much for these lessons about our Savior and for reminding us of the power, the authority, the love, the overwhelming nature of who He is and what He's done for us. Thank you, Father. In His name we pray. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.